The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. want to go on holiday do you know what you have to do you have to join one of the entourages for the g7 i do think that future historians will look back in this and say this was the single biggest public health mistake possibly in all history what are we if we don't give people in this country a second chance if your co-pilot ends up burning her mask somewhere i know you're going to come and bail me out aren't you Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Will the 21st of June finally see the end of COVID restrictions? Or are we in for weeks or even months more lockdown? One minute Boris Johnson says there's nothing in the data to suggest the great unlocking should be delayed. The next, Health Secretary Matt Hancock Alison Pearson's heart <laughs> says he's absolutely open to delaying Freedom Day. So what if almost all over 50s and other vulnerable groups across Britain have now been double jabbed? Our paranoid politicians are like lockdown addicts. As G7 leaders fly in for this weekend's Cornwall Summit, our buckets and spades remain locked in the loft, the prospect of foreign holidays disappearing for a second summer running. The question now can Alison Pearson end lockdown? <laughs> For those she may be little, she is fierce. Make some phone calls, co-pilot. Write that column forcing our masters to see sense. For the 21st of June must surely mark our midsummer night's dream of post-COVID freedom. Lord, what fools these politicians be. And how, co-pilot? Oh, my goodness. What a a week. So at least we've got one thing clear. If you want to go on holiday, do you know what you have to do? You have to join one of the entourages for the G7 because uh, you get a thousand foreign press, all the the, um, White House staff flying into Cornwall to enjoy a trip which all the peasantry in the United Kingdom can't because we're we're all still locked up. So if you enjoy immunity or diplomatic immunity, co-pilot, you're better off. Yes, what a week, what a week of, of um, lockdown madness we've had, starting with Portugal, which you'll have noticed was suddenly peremptorily taken off the green list, much to the horror of a few hundred thousand Brits who were holidaying there on the assumption that it was OK to go. And the story that caught my eye, Liam, was that Michael Gove and his son went to the uh, Champions League final in Porto in Portugal. And when Mr Gove got back, he was pinged to say that he'd been in contact with someone with COVID. Now, you know that he's supposed to self-isolate, don't you? But instead, Mr Gove was allowed to take part in a new pilot scheme, rather like something we should get on the planet, normal rocket, actually, a pilot scheme. So Michael Gove was allowed to be tested every day. And I don't know what you think, Liam, but I think it's uncanny that the new Michael Gove pilot scheme for Michael Gove should be set up at exactly the moment that he was supposed to be self-isolating. So where are we? Let's have a look. Monday... This coming Monday is going to be absolutely crucial. It's the day that number 10 and all the advisors look at the data. And as you say, there's some grim forecasts from the scientists. But what are we going to say on Planet Normal, Halligan? I am still betting on a full unlocking on the 21st of June. And that's because nobody 
could look at the figures honestly and say that things weren't absolutely fine to go back to normal. And that's because the latest ONS figures, that's the Office for National Statistics figures, in England, an estimated 8 in 10 adults or 80.3% of the adult population will have tested positive for antibodies against coronavirus. And I'm asking you now, co-pilot, if we can't unlock with weapons-grade immunity like that, when can we? The 14th of June, next Monday, is the day, the earliest day by which the government will make a decision about Freedom Day on June the 21st, isn't it? And we've seen a seesawing over the last week before this recording. As we said in the intro, one minute Boris Johnson saying, it all looks good. The next minute Matt Hancock saying completely the opposite. There is a flare-up of COVID cases, high percentage increases, but from a very, very low base particularly in the northwest of England. Uh, We've seen surge vaccinations going on. We've seen a higher take-up of vaccines among some of those vaccine-hesitant communities. But crucially, crucially, as you've been stressing for weeks now, the link between cases and hospitalizations and deaths does seem to have broken by the vaccine. And I think if I certainly hope you're right, and June the 21st does lead to a significant easing of anti-COVID restrictions, because I think if there isn't a significant easing, and I don't want this to happen, I'm just suggesting that it might, I think you're going to see a lot of sort of soft civil disobedience. Uh, I think it's going to be extremely tough to police this situation. Police on the ground want to implement common sense And yet they have to do or be seen to do what's the law of the land. It's all very well people gently breaking the rules. You get people breaking the rules openly in the likes of Trafalgar Square uh, and town centres across the country. It'll be very hard for the police not to break up those crowds. And when the police try to break up those crowds, there will be some very, very difficult situations to manage. And that's my concern that having been told for so long that we're going to ease the restrictions finally, having outperformed the government's roadmap on almost every criteria, be it the efficacy of the vaccine, the take-up of the vaccine, the lowering of cases, the lowering of deaths, right across the board, albeit with a few regional flare-ups. If there is not a declaration of Freedom Day, then I think an awful lot of the British public is going to find it very, very difficult to understand why. And a small proportion of the British public, the vast majority, will remain completely law-abiding, of course. That's what makes Britain the country that it is. But a small but significant proportion of the British public may well say, you know what, I've had enough of this. That's right, Liam. I think when I've been talking to people this week, I think the general view tends to be I'm done we've been pretty good, haven't we? We've gone along with rules, quite a few of which I find very silly and not really anything to do with health and safety at all. But we've we've swallowed it. I, you know, I've said I've gone on the record as saying that I won't be wearing my mask after the 21st of June. And that's not because I want to break the law. I, I'm just not going to go into restaurants. I'm not going to go into any place which uh, requires me to wear a mask. And that's going to be your co-pilot's little bit of civil disobedience. We'll come on to a bit of an update from George later about the situation in hospitals. But I thought it would be good to remind ourselves today, Liam, 
what Boris Johnson said to Parliament when he first announced the roadmap. He said, Britain and the world will not eliminate COVID and we cannot persist indefinitely with restrictions that debilitate our economy, our physical and mental well-being and the life chances of our children. And that is why it is so crucial that this roadmap is cautious but irreversible. We're setting out on what I hope and believe is a one-way road to freedom. And that road ends on June the 21st. And something which has, I think, really cheered everybody up this week. You'll have seen in the Telegraph, Liam, that Andrew Lloyd Webber, the great composer and impresario, has said that Boris Johnson will have to arrest him if he wants to stop his new show opening on the 21st of June. Lord Lloyd Webber has pointed out that theatres are under acute financial stress. His new musical Cinderella is opening and it has no chance of recouping its £6 million budget if social distancing is still in place. And Lloyd Webber has threatened the government with the mother of all legal cases if it doesn't allow large events to go ahead. And there are going to be a lot of brides and grooms around the country who are going to be cheering Lloyd Webber on as well. So, so Liam, the question I'd say to you is, is that are Matt Hancock and Chris Whitty going to play the Ugly Sisters? Or will Boris get down on one knee? Is Boris going to get down on one knee, give us our shoe back and say, you shall go to the ball? (laughs) Sensible countries, France, the United States, Joe Biden's just flying into Cornwall for the G7, Germany, all these countries, if you are double jabbed, you can travel anywhere and you don't have to quarantine, Liam. It's not very hard, is it? People realise that the economy's got to get back on its feet. And I think there's a lot of displacement going on with these politicians. It's it, it's probably quite nice in a way, isn't it? You know, keep everyone on tenterhooks. While all this lockdown is still going on, they don't really have to face up to the truly grim consequences of what's going on elsewhere. I just wanted to mention briefly, you know, this is something I've been delving down into. Here comes the week's Velma moment. Ah, uh, here we go. (laughs) I was just thinking, actually, that um, to, to newer listeners to Planet Normal, the reason that Liam makes that strange noise when I say the word Velma is because we were both fans as children of Scooby-Doo. And I always wanted to be Daphne, who is the glamorous blonde. But um, tragically, I seem to have been cast as the uh, Velma, who is the stats monitor with the thick bottle bottom You wanted You wanted the the white high-gloss thigh boots, didn't you, of Daphne? Not the thick Coke bottle glasses and the orange (laughs) itchy roll neck of Velma, the brainy one. But Alison, you know, there's plenty of Velma about you. And I say that, I say that. As a compliment. Well, it, I'm afraid it's been forced on me, Liam, this last year. Anyway, anyway, so in, in the past, we've had a friend of Planet Normal, Charlie Robinson, a scientist, has helped me, as you know, with a lot of the data. And this week, Kate Robinson, who is Charlie's daughter, Kate's just 14 years old, but already a whiz at maths and data analysis. And I asked Kate to have a look at this crisis that's been almost completely hidden from view, which is excess deaths in the home. Now listen to this, Halligan, this is extraordinary. So between week 11 of 2020, that was around mid-March last year, and week 20 of 2021, that's around late May, we've had 58,791 excess deaths in the home. That's above, that's a huge number above the five-year average. So lockdown has meant that around 900 people every single week have been dying at home who wouldn't normally 
have died at home. And worryingly, Liam, this is still going on. In the most recent week, 8th of June, there were 582 excess deaths in the home. And we've had a flood of correspondence, haven't we, from medical staff saying people, obviously, one, people are still too frightened to go to the hospital, even if they're very ill. And we know why that is. And that's because they know that once they're in the hospital, even if there's no COVID in the hospital, in most areas of the country now, there's no COVID, they still won't be able to see friends and family. So they prefer to die in pain at home. So I would say those bans on visiting need to be lifted immediately. And they are also not able to access healthcare. And this has been a a perennial theme on Planet Normal, hasn't it? They cannot see a GP. They cannot get an urgent referral. So I predict, Liam, that this is going to be a huge story, the vast number of excess deaths in the home. But just, just very quickly, just to come back to this deadline. So I asked George, can you just quickly tell the listeners who George is? So George is the senior source within NHS England. He or she, we don't disclose, has full access to the internal data. Uh, we're confident of the authenticity of George's statistics, which is why we report on Planet Normal. But we can't independently verify them because, by definition, uh, George gives them to us before they're published, if indeed they're published at all. Yes, so we're very lucky to have these hot-off-the-press figures. And George is telling us that there were, this week, 847 COVID inpatients in English hospitals. It's a very slight increase over the previous week. But as George said, we're still talking about a minute fraction of the population of over 58 million in England. Over the last seven days, there was an average of about 100 new admissions, but 50 of those were actual admissions with COVID, but half were patients who tested positive for the virus once they were in hospital with with another illness. And the the six hospitals with the most COVID patients, no surprises there, Liam, Manchester, East Lancashire, Blackburn, Burnley, Bolton, Salford, Bedford and Southampton. But I think the main point, something that listeners would be really interested in, the main points to note, George says, are the dramatic shift in the age breakdown of patients. As little as two months ago, the majority of COVID inpatients were in the 65 and over age bracket. Mm. Since the middle of May, the proportion of over 65s in hospital has fallen to only a quarter of the daily total. The over 75s now account for around just one in 10 of all inpatients. And don't forget, as George said, the overall numbers are tiny Anyway, it's a very, very tiny number of elderly people in the hospitals now. And the good thing about this is, is that the 18 to 44 age group, where we've seen the big increase, are statistically much less likely to get a severe version of the virus and require treatment in ICU. And these, Liam, are also the later groups for vaccination. So this proves, guess what? The vaccine is clearly working to protect the age groups that have been vaccinated. And George, just to conclude, says that the in-hospital deaths are really dwindling. Only 31 reported so far since the beginning of the June in the whole of England and not a single one in the southeast or the southwest. It really is remarkable, says George, how every hospital went from multiple daily deaths in the first few weeks of the year to maybe one or two a week in the most recent weeks. And finally, George is always good at concluding, The crazy point about all of this is that if we delay reopening for, say, two more weeks to protect the NHS generally from essentially a non-COVID crisis, then when does it ever end? 
Every winter, there will be calls for lockdowns or circuit breakers. If the Prime Minister caves into these demands now, it will literally open the floodgates to this being standard practice at any time there's a rush on in A&E. So that's a sobering thought, co-pilot. It certainly is. I think that uh, age profile of the people who are being hospitalised is just not breaking through into the public consciousness. The fact that they are now the vast majority of them outside of those older and more vulnerable groups. And that's why the vaccine is breaking the link between cases of COVID and deaths. And that's what I want the politicians to focus on, because I think if they did focus on it, Alison, they'd might be much more minded to go ahead with Freedom Day on June the 21st. After everything we've been through, now facing a second summer in succession, where the ability to, to, to rest and have holidays being made far more difficult, I do think we will unfortunately get into a situation after the 21st of June, unless there's a proper release of lockdown, where the police have a very, very tough time keeping order and maintaining the, the, the notion that the vast majority of the population are adhering to the law. Because once adherence to the law goes, then we're in a much, much more difficult situation. And if your co-pilot ends up burning her mask somewhere, I know you're going to come and bail me out, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) I think you speak for a lot of people, Alison. I think, you know, you won't break the law, but what you will do is not take your business to shops that require you to wear a mask. You won't use public transport if that means you have to wear a mask. And I think, certainly judging by the planet normal inbox, a lot of people agree with you. Well, elsewhere on planet Earth, there were other kinds of madness as well. Did you see the Ollie Robinson story, Liam, with this amazingly promising young cricketer playing his first test match against New Zealand when suddenly some historic tweets he'd made were unearthed by uh, a helpful third party. And immediately, uh, Ollie Robinson was suspended by the ECB, that's the England and Wales Cricket Board. Oliver Dowden, the Culture Secretary, mercifully actually stepped in and said that the action had been over the top and the ECB should think should think again, saying that the tweets that Ollie Robinson had made when, I mean, he was a teenager, Liam. I mean, when you're 18, being a bit of a prat is the job description, isn't it? I mean, let's face it, if, if we were all held to things we'd said when we were 18, we'd be in big trouble. But But what really alarms me about this, I think, is that this was probably the best day of Ollie Robinson's life, stepping out to represent his country, been trawling through his social media accounts to try and dig up any stupid, tasteless remark to bring him down. And for me, that is the morally abhorrent action. Forget what this guy said. That's the morally abhorrent action. And institutions like the ECB are also to blame. They are so keen to signal their progressive credentials that they don't stick up for decency and for normal people. And they buckle almost immediately to the pitchfork-wielding mob. And it really only encourages them. And what I feel, co-pilot, is this: we have got this vengeful culture so unforgiving, so lacking in nuance. And to me, it feels utterly un-British. I don't, what do you think? No, I think it's very worrying when stuff you said when you were 18 years old is, is used against you. Obviously, you said stupid things and offensive things, but is there ever going to be any forgiveness? I mean, what do the, the pitchfork brigade want? Do they want him never to play for England again? I mean, surely 
that's not the way to bring unity uh, and end division in the UK. I must say, you know, the England cricket team has been a model of diversity mm. over the years for a sport that's pretty connected with, you know, the, the, the elite, if you like, and, 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 and very well-heeled schools. Think of Nasser Hussain's fabulous cricket captaincy. Think of, you know, Jofra Archer, the current strike partner for Ollie Robinson yes. in among Britain's fast bowlers. We've had some fabulous Asian uh, and black British players who have been cheered to the rafters by predominantly white, it must be said, English cricket fans. So this is clearly a sport that is doing well with diversity, has some way to go, being a bit more socially inclusive, I would say. Cricket's brought women into the game uh, and young girls. A fabulous explosion in that direction in recent years. But to treat a young guy like this, who was clearly shown contrition, he clearly knows he made a mistake. He's clearly giving a really heartfelt apology with no sense of contextualising or trying to make excuses for himself. He said what he did was wrong and surely it's time to move on. And you've got Oliver Dowden, the culture secretary, saying that the ECB are over the top. And you've got Boris Johnson too, mm. rightly, mm. I think, saying that the ECB is over the top. And yet, you know, I'm sure they'll be chided for saying that. We don't have the same issue with race that the United States, unfortunately, has. We don't have the deeply traumatic history and scar across our society that America has, an economy uh, originally built on domestic slavery. We don't have that. And I would say a huge number of British immigrant communities would agree with that. That's why it's such a popular place to come and make your life, because it is broadly a very tolerant place. Of course, there are bad apples. Of course, there are morons. And when Ollie Robinson was 18, he was a moron. And clearly, when kids are 18, they do do stupid things. But I don't watch him speak to camera and think that he is somebody who still holds those views. On the contrary, I see a young man on the brink of a world-class cricket career who is deeply sorry and should be given a second chance. What are we if we don't give people in this country a second chance? Absolutely. That's what I mean. We've become very vengeful. And this is what's happening now with this booing of uh, football players taking the knee. We've got the European Championships coming up. This very, very ugly row is brewing. And we had Gareth Southgate, who I rather admire. I think he's a very good bloke. But saying this week in a kind of open letter that football players have a duty to interact with fans on issues such as racial injustice. I mean, I don't know about you, Liam, but it made me feel very nostalgic for the days of Gaza crying. (laughs) You were a very great sportsman in your youth. You enjoyed rowing and football and all those things. Why are we looking to these people? I don't look to Premier League footballers to be moral exemplars. I mean, they can thrill us with their talent and so on. But there is something absolutely extraordinary. I mean, this whole taking the knee lock now, and I think one of the reasons that the fans are booing them. It's not because they're racist and they don't want people to stand up against racism. I think, as you said, that they think this is a kind of imported custom, brought, imported from America, co-opted by the hard left, 
with demands which are, you know, absolutely extraordinary, very extreme, anti-capitalist, defund the police, uh, against the nuclear family, all these things, which a lot, many, many black people also find incredibly unhelpful and, and depressing. And I, I don't think that fans who pay a lot of their hard-earned wages for football tickets want to be lectured by multimillionaires. I mean, the, the idea of Premier League footballers being allied with Black Lives Matter, which is anti-capitalist, is hilarious. I mean, there isn't really, you know, as you're driving your Maserati or your McLaren, you're not really sitting there thinking, let's defund capitalism, are you? I think football has got a problem in this sense. When I was a kid and I went to watch football in the late 70s and more into the 80s, some of the chants of black players, you know, fabulous players like Luther Blissett, Laurie Cunningham, absolutely terrible. And even into the more modern day, absolutely terrible. Football has rightly had a kick it out campaign that's been very, very successful. Football has changed. There's now much, much more inclusivity. And of course, black players, I wouldn't say they dominate the national game, but they are massively important in our national game and in our national team. And I doubt there are many England fans who don't cheer Raheem Sterling to the same extent that they cheer Harry Kane when they score a goal. And let's see, hope that we see plenty of that in the upcoming European Championships. I think what really irks football fans uh, who've been going to the same ground all their lives and even for generations, is that politics and a very kind of touchy-feely, middle-class, metropolitan, virtue-signalling politics is being brought into our national game. And that's what they don't like. They don't like being preached to and they don't like their players carrying out an action which is basically, as you said, imported from the United States, which is a very, very different situation. And I think actually what Gareth Southgate has done, I think it was well meant and he wrote a very interesting and well put together letter. But I think in constantly pushing this, he is being divisive. I think he's pushing the point so far that it's really getting up the notice of lots of football fans. And I think we should move on from this symbolism, which many, many people find disturbing and unhelpful. Now, co-pilot, I think you might sound, listeners might think that Liam sounds a bit different today, a bit echoey, a bit as though he's um, coming from Mars today in the rocket. <laughs> but you are actually, I can I can exclusively reveal, in the GB News studios, GB News, new channel, exciting, launching on Sunday night and, and um, with amazing names, Andrew Neal, Alistair Stewart, Michelle Dubery, Laura DiPiero. Um, we're looking forward to it. I know lots of us have been chucking bricks at the, at the news at, at the, these, last, these last months. We'll be really, really looking forward to it. Now, I can exclusively reveal that co-pilot Halligan's role in this amazing <laughs> new broadcasting venture. is making the tea. It's make, hey, making he the jumped tea. in before me, the trolley. Now, <laughs> I can say to Andrew Neal, he'll make you a lovely bacon butty <laughs> and he's no trouble. And if he occasionally tries to get on the air, just tell him to, you know, just tell him to back off. Just give, tell us quickly, what does it feel like? Is it all kind of exciting, uh, new production? What's it like? Is it chaos? Well, I guess I'm in pre-launch purder, but I can say that there are many of us here in these newly built studios yet to be completed studios that will be there in time, working very, very hard. We're rehearsing in real time, if you like. So we're broadcasting, if only to tape, from 6 a.m. in the morning to 12 midnight every day. And we've been doing that for the last few weeks. I'm 
co-hosting a show with Gloria DiPiero, who's a former Labour MP who I know you admire, Alison. She's a, a working class lass from Bradford who came up into politics the hard way. She's a fabulous broadcaster. She was on GMTV as their political editor for many years. That's when I first met her. And we don't always agree on things and quite often we disagree, but we always do so in a gracious way. And I think that's what Britain needs more of. We need to learn the art or relearn the art of disagreeing in good faith, because I think in recent years it's become very, very difficult to have honest disagreements when certain people keep assuming bad faith and and view people who don't agree with them as immoral and uneducated or xenophobic. We saw a lot of that during the Brexit debate, didn't we? And I think I admire Gloria because she's somebody who did vote Remain, but she saw that her constituency at the time, Ashfield in Nottingham, voted for Leave, and then she fought hard, and it hurt her a lot, to make sure that her own Labour Party honoured the referendum results. And she didn't always win those battles, but it was a real political blooding for her. And I think during that period, she won a lot of admirers, uh, along with Caroline Flint, her close friend and then colleague on the Labour backbenches. So I'm looking forward to GB News. I think it is going to bring a breath of fresh air to British uh, television broadcasting. And it'll be good to see you on the air at some point, co-pilot. I know Planet Normal listeners would be a bit worried, co-pilot, that we're going to be losing you into the exotic broadcasting fame, but we're going to still be flying the shonky old rocket, aren't we? Of course, we'll be firing up the Planet Normal rocket every week. (laughs) How could we possibly miss it, giving the huge family of listeners, the army of Planet Normal stormtroopers (laughs) aboard the Planet Normal rocket bound for the realms of common sense? Hello, uh, Brian Moore, the former England hooker here. The Lions is back, and so is my podcast, Brian Moore's Full Contact. Ahead of the tour of South Africa, I'll be reliving great rugby moments with Lions legends like Sir Ian McGeekin, Alex Corbusiero, and John Schmidt. Can't nab a front row seat this year, but with our podcast, you just don't need one. Search for Brian Moore's Full Contact on your podcast app, hit subscribe, it's all free, and make sure you don't miss it. Last week, Planet Normal once again generated front page news following our latest interview with Intelligence Supremo Sir Richard Dearlove. You were absolutely fascinated by that interview. The former boss of MI6 has long asserted that COVID was created in a lab in Wuhan and then escaped, a view which was once dismissed as outlandish, but now increasingly seen as more likely. You can catch up with both of Richard's interviews from last week and June 2020 on our Planet Normal archive. So who have you got for us this week, Liam? Well, our Planet Normal stowaway this week, Alison, is equally distinguished. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya is Professor of Medicine at Stanford University in California, and he has a PhD in economics also from Stanford. Dr. Bhattacharya was born in India, raised in the US. He's published dozens of articles in peer-reviewed scientific journals, with a, and he has impeccable academic credentials. But Dr. Bhattacharya's reach goes way beyond the ivory tower. Because, of course, he wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, published in October 2020, which called for an end to economy-wide lockdowns, arguing instead for a more age-stratified approach to lockdown, along with co-authors 
Dr. Shinetra Gupta of Oxford, another planned normal stairway of the past, and Martin Koldorf of Harvard. Two other world-class academics, by the way. Bhattacharya, he's been smeared and abused by many other scientists for suggesting that economy-wide lockdowns do more harm than good. And I started by asking Dr. Bhattacharya why he co-authored the Great Barrington Declaration in the first place. Our main goal was to change the disastrous lockdown policies that we've been seeing used to address the epidemic. And we, we've all of us forecasted that there would be a second wave upcoming in the fall. And we, what we were afraid of, and which actually came to pass, is that countries around the world would rely on lockdown as opposed to more tried and true pandemic approaches to address the problem. So our goal was to change that policy, to tell people that there was an alternative Focus protection of the vulnerable over and above lockdown, which has basically failed to protect the vulnerable and also caused enormous collateral harm. So broadly speaking, the Great Barrington approach was and is an age stratified version of lockdown where you help older people and other vulnerable groups, whatever their age, to lockdown. You provide them with financial resources, with logistics to support to do so. Now, you're a professor of medicine at Stanford. You've got a PhD in economics from Stanford. You've got four degrees from Stanford. You've published dozens and dozens of articles in peer-reviewed scientific journals. And your fellow co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration are equally distinguished. And yet the response to what you did from academic colleagues and the broader scientific community, there was tremendous pushback and worse, wasn't there? There really was. And I was actually, frankly, surprised by that. I did expect to have some pushback. That is completely fair. Some of the most vocal parts of the scientific community, including those that in control of the policies in the US, UK, and many other places, they have a vested interest in saying that the lockdowns were the right approach from the spring of last year in the summer. And so I did expect some pushback. Uh, but what I more broadly expected was engagement by public health officials, by the scientific community at large, to think about mechanisms to protect the vulnerable. I mean, that's just such a standard part of public health. You identify a vulnerable population and you think of creative ways to protect them, to, to, to give them tools so that they can avoid disease that can stay in good health. That is standard public health. And instead of that engagement, well, we got some, but, but for the large part, instead of that engagement, what we got was smearing, uh, mischaracterization. I mean, Dr. Tony Fauci of the National Institute of Health, he actually said that we were in favor of a let it rip strategy, oh. which is the very opposite of the strategy we we're proposing. We don't want to let it rip to the population. What we want is focused protection of the vulnerable. You know, the irony is that when the vaccines came out, many countries and many states in the United States adopted a focused protection strategy. Who got vaccinated first? What well, was the vulnerable? The people that were oldest and people who cared for the people that were oldest. That, that's, that's a focus protection idea adopted by countries as soon as the vaccine came out. But why couldn't we have done that before in the sense of like, let's think of strategies to, to, to protect the vulnerable. Instead, we said, let's rely on lockdown to protect the vulnerable. Somehow closing down schools will make sure that people living in care homes don't get, don't get infected. And of course, that's failed. It's failed everywhere. It's been tried and it's caused enormous harm. I mean, how surprised are you, Dr. Bhattacharya, that the Western world has reached for, grabbed a pretty medieval version of how to manage a pandemic, just lock everything down rather than a more nuanced age stratified approach? It was maybe forgivable before we knew what COVID was, but pretty early in this pandemic, 
you know, early spring or mid spring 2020, we knew, didn't we, that it almost entirely scored fatalities among older and vulnerable groups. How did we end up adopting such a blunt, full lockdown approach? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think even to this date, it's 80% of the deaths have been come above people age 65 and above. I, I mean, I've mulled over this. And of course, now there's there's actually an academic literature around the, uh, trying to answer that question. I think the, the, the main answer is that people looked at the Chinese experience of the virus, and they looked at the Italian experience of the virus, and they compared them from, you know, from the early days. Of course, China was the first, and then Italy was the second country to get hit, uh, and it gripped the attention of the world. And the Chinese experience of the virus looked like it had been successful. The Chinese locked people in their homes, sometimes barring the doors. They forced quarantine people. They did all kinds of draconian things. People looked at this Chinese response and said, oh, look, they got rid of the virus. And then they compared that against the Italian response, uh, a much less draconian, although still quite draconian, I'd say, policy of lockdown, and said, look, that failed. And in that comparison, they said, well, we also better adopt this draconian policy. But how do you adopt a policy like that in the context of a democracy? How do you adopt a policy like that in the context where you still need people to make and serve food, grow food, you need, still need people to do deliveries, you still need people to care for older people, you still have you know, what we call them a class of essential workers. Society still needs to go on. It's not actually humanly possible for us to stay apart from one another, every single individual for, for months on end. It just it would end civilization for that to happen. But so civilization doesn't end. Instead, what happens, the actual practice of a lockdown is a class of people, a small class of people, relatively well off, have jobs that can be done uh, remotely. Well, those people, they can be protected while the rest of society has to face the harms of the, the virus, whether they're vulnerable or not, whether they're high, high risk or not. That's the actual practice of lockdown. It's, lockdown is trickle-down epidemiology. It's, it's essentially focused protection of the rich. It's really incredible to me to watch the failure of this strategy so evident, and yet much of the scientific community remains uh, attached to it. What do you think future historians will say, Dr. Bhattacharya, when they look back and they see people like you being chided, insulted, smeared? You can look after yourself, of course, but the throwing out of decades, centuries even, of scientific progress and endeavour reaching for basically a medieval full lockdown solution. Yeah, I don't I well I don't I, I doubt future historians will have much to say about me in particular, but I do think that that future historians will look back in this and say this was the single biggest public health mistake possibly in all history in terms of the scope of the harm that it's caused. Every single poor person on the face of the earth has faced some harm, sometimes catastrophic harm from this lockdown policy. You know, the, the UN in April of last year estimated that 130 million people around the world would face starvation as a consequence of the lockdowns. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people would die from tuberculosis because they didn't receive basic treatments that, that would have saved their lives. Uh, that's in developing the world. Uh, or, uh, the UN in March of this year estimated in South Asia alone, 228,000 children have died from starvation and missed medical care because of the lockdowns there. In developed countries, we have similar problems, although maybe not quite the same scale. Right? So women this year will come in with late-stage breast cancer that should have been diagnosed last year, and they'll die from breast cancer that they should have survived. 
men and women together will die from colon cancer that should have been picked up last year. Diabetics will have kidneys fail that should have been addressed during previous years. We were going to have an enormous after effect of these lockdowns. It's not simply one. I mean, and it's, it's very, very simple. You can't think about public health as if it were a just one thing. Health is a multifaceted thing and public health should focus on all the facets of health. Humans need more than just infection control. Alison and I, in our small way and modest way on Planet Normal, we've tried hard over the last year to talk about the costs of lockdown, the collateral damage, if you like. And you are now a leading light in what's called the Collateral Global Project, where you're trying to collate, analyse uh, and disseminate this sense of the cost of lockdown. Do you think now that lockdown cure is worse than the COVID disease itself? And if so, how long has that been the case where lockdown is costing more lives than it's saving? Almost from the very beginning, lockdown was going to have enormous collateral consequences, things that are sometimes are hard to see, but are nevertheless real. Right. So I'll just give you one, one thing that's small, but it's actually not small, right? In the United States, the rate at which reported child abuse dropped last year. Well, why is that? It's because much child abuse is identified in schools. Yeah. Well, the schools shut down, the child abuse reporting shut down, but the child abuse didn't. Children who were abused couldn't get the help they needed because they weren't in places where other adults could identify the abuse. Domestic abuse, same story. Um, the, the the skipped medical care, all of those kinds of harms, I think even from the very beginning were going on and yet we closed our eyes to them because we were so scared about the virus and so enamored with this idea that the lockdown could stop the virus, which you know evidently hasn't. Uh, so I think to, to answer your question, I, I think from the very beginning, we were starting to see this collateral damage. And this Collateral Global Project, our goal is to, to, is to document the scientific literature that's now started to come out on this and just tell the story. You know, there's some, some things that maybe lockdown, I think there's been some folks who've argued that the lockdown could have had some environmental benefits because it reduced the amount of people driving and things like that. That's possible. We'll document that as the scientific evidence comes out. But on the whole, I think the harms of the lockdown are orders of magnitude worse than whatever we putatively gained from the lockdowns in terms of virus control, which I think is not very much. Now, the US is, of course, a real powerhouse of uh, scientific research, not least because of all the fabulous universities that you've got there. But also, it's an interesting lab, isn't it? Because some states have lockdowns to different extents than other states. And do you think it's right in saying that the Florida governor, Ron DeSantos, has been vindicated? In Florida, of course, there are a preponderance of, of older people, a lot of retirees. But Florida's death rate among seniors, as you say in the States, is about 20% lower than California's and 50% lower than New York, even though Florida has had much less of a lockdown than those two other states. I mean, I'll just give you something that's, that's striking. Uh, in California, we have Disneyland, which has been closed basically since the lockdown started last year. For almost a, more than a year, it's been closed. Florida has Disney World, which has been open since last summer, fully open. And yet, Florida has had better COVID outcomes. Even though they have an older population, uh, their older population actually has been protected because the state worked very hard to protect them against exposure to the virus. And once the vaccines came in, unlike California, my mom lives in Southern California. She didn't get the vaccine until late March. 
She's over 80. In Florida, every single nursing home resident had been offered the vaccine by the end of January, a full two months before California could make that same claim. The focus in Florida on protecting the vulnerable is why they've had better outcomes. At the same time, they didn't shut the rest of their society down. And so they've had lower excess mortality among young people compared to California. From a public health point of view, the lockdowns have been disastrous for the young and also disastrous for the old. And the Florida-California comparison, California where I live in Florida and the state where Governor DeSantis has done, has basically followed a focused protection approach, shows what can be accomplished if we just stuck to our old pandemic plans. Now, you were born near Calcutta, Dr. Bhattacharya. You've lived in the States since you were a small boy. You remind me, if I may say so, of the great Nobel Prize winning economist Amartya Sen, having been born in India, but making much of your career in in the Western world. To what extent has the fact that you are from India, you still have lots of family in India, you are a kind of bridge in many ways between the emerging markets and the Western world. To what extent has that shaped your approach to economics and your approach to this pandemic? Well, first of all, I'm flattered by the comparison. It's it's certainly unwarranted. Professor Sen is an amazing economist. Uh, For for me, it's uh, my background and my family members that I have in India have given me firsthand experience, a view into what life is like in a country that is not rich. I grew up in a rich country, the United States, but I've seen from the lives of my cousins, my uncles and aunts, what life is like in a place that doesn't have the same set of resources as the United States. And it's been fundamental for me to understand that the the sort of pieties and norms that we think of as the right thing in the United States don't always carry over to the rest of the world. And so as an economist, I've worked very hard to try to have that broader view. I mean, I, not, not necessarily always successful, I think, but like, I th- uh, yeah, I try my best. As an economist who does keep eyes fixed firmly on both the developing and the developed world, to what extent do you think the West can morally defend itself when politicians are saying we should now vaccinate children in the West rather than making vaccines available to vaccinate older, vulnerable adults across the rest of the world? It makes no sense. Uh, it makes no sense both from, a, a, from uh, like, a, if you're talking as an economist, there's a notion of pay rate or improvement. You can make people better off uh, everyone better off, right? So children actually are not at very high risk from COVID. They face vanishingly low risk of mortality relative to older people. Uh, and there's some harm from the vaccine. Again, very, very small harm, but still. So you have what you have is essentially the vaccine doesn't particularly benefit children directly. At the same time, it would enormously benefit older populations throughout the world to have this vaccine it's been a life-saving thing in the United States and the UK. There's no good moral reason why these vaccines shouldn't be made available to older people everywhere, no matter where you live. We would save so many lives by that. You need to vaccinate nearly a thousand young people, young children, to get in expectation the same number of lives saved as vaccinating a single 80-year-old or a single 70-year-old. 
from a, both an economic efficiency point of view and from a moral point of view, it is absolutely essential that we take the vaccine doses we have and make them available to people around the older people around the world. You know, it's one of these things where as a, as an American economist, I can see where people are saying, okay, well, we have these excess doses. Let's push very hard to make sure that people who have very marginal benefit from it get it because they're only looking at the United States or maybe you're only looking at the UK. But I think a broader view here is quite helpful. There are people suffering around the world from this disease. I personally have had two, I had a 73-year-old uncle in India die from COVID and a 72-year-old cousin. The vaccines, had they been deployed in a focus protection manner in India, would have saved so many lives. Give me one word that describes the Western morality of vaccinating our children before we're vaccinating millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of older, vulnerable people in other countries. It's, it's <laughs> I only get one word, utterly immoral. It, that's two words, immoral. You can have two words, that's fine. It's just wrong. Here in the UK, our own health secretary, Matt Hancock, says he's, quote, absolutely open to delaying the 21st of June. That's the day when we're meant to have a full easing or a near full easing of lockdown restrictions. And yet the UK, of course, is a global exemplar in terms of our vaccination programme. Almost all our over 50s and other vulnerable groups have now been double jabbed. What's your response to what Matt Hancock is now saying? Do you think politicians have become addicted to lockdown? They have. But the problem is the lockdowns themselves are harmful. Now, if somehow the lockdowns could have could have actually eliminated COVID and saved us the 3 million deaths worldwide that we've had from COVID, it's possible that they might have been worthwhile. But I just, it wasn't feasible even from the beginning to think that they would. And they very clearly haven't. At this late date to say the lockdowns are in the feasible set of policy is completely irresponsible from a public health leader. And I think for, for the UK especially, which has done such a great job vaccinating the older population, protecting them against severe disease and outcomes. I, I heard that just what like earlier last week, there was zero COVID deaths reported in the UK. That's an enormous success. I think the government should declare victory and move on. And yet they're not, are they? It's almost as if our politicians here in the UK, and obviously we're not the US, but people watch what the UK does, right? We're an important yeah. country and we've we've led the world in terms of our vaccine rollout. It's almost as if our politicians are denying the success of lockdown because no one wants to make the call, let's go for it now. Let's free up society. Let's free up the economy and let's learn to live with this thing. It's a strange kind of vaccine denial, actually, if you think about it, because if the vaccines have been so successful in reducing death and mortality because they've been employed in this sort of focus protection kind of way in the UK. Uh, and instead, what you get is panicked fears about the potential variants coming in, you know, Indian variant, Brazilian variant, what you name it or whatnot. And instead of like looking at the data, which show that you name the vaccine that has been used in the West, at least, they protect against severe disease and death, no matter what the variant that's been true. And instead of telling people, look, if you have the jab, you've been, you're protected against these things, let's just open and let's stop harming people with the lockdowns. Instead of just saying, let's, let's declare victory, which is really what they ought to do, they're still trying to panic the population which I mean is an irresponsible public health thing to do even for a few minutes, certainly for more than a year. And Dr. Bhattacharya, finally, you've told Alison and I that you always loved maths and science as a kid. You were drawn to medicine because it seemed to you then and now as a great way to use science for a real purpose. 
obviously science has done brilliantly to create these vaccines and help get them distributed. But do you think the reputation of science more broadly has been damaged during this pandemic? I do. Uh, I do. I, I, I agree with you about the success. Um, the vaccines are an enormous success. Uh, but at the same time, the cornerstone of science, which is the ability to, to discuss openly the evidence without fear of censorship and smearing, that's been harmed, of course, by non-scientists, but also by scientists themselves, who have essentially tried to shut, many scientists tried to shut down debate as opposed to keeping open debate. That's harmful to the reputation of scientists, and it'll take a long time to repair, I'm, I'm afraid. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, what an honor to have you on Planet Normal. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation. Gosh, Liam, what an impressive man he is. I, I love the way he just casually uh, combines being a world-class economist with being a world-class medic. An amazing man and speaking his own, you know, very profound scientific truths there. And yet having found himself reviled, you know, such an incredibly, you know, polite and, and clearly decent man, reviled for holding these views that a particular kind of protection of the vulnerable population would have been better than the blunt instrument of lockdown. Now onto our listener emails, a selection of the wonderful, insightful, often very funny, sometimes heartbreaking messages you send each week to Liam and me at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We really rely on them and we're putting together really good stories and cases for change based on your emails. This week, Liam, we've had a huge number from people in the working in hospitals and elsewhere in the medical profession. Some extraordinary things, actually. This is Penny. I work in A&E as a receptionist. From the moment that the pandemic hit, we have been the gateway for COVID patients into the hospital. We didn't have the luxury of closing our doors. We had to don PPE and just get on with it. Most of us doing jobs we were not employed to do, but recognising it was exceptional circumstances. We rolled up our sleeves quite literally and got stuck in. Having got through such a tough period, it would have been nice to catch our breath before the onslaught of patients with other non-COVID related problems. But because GPs are still hiding behind closed doors, that has not been possible. If I hear one more person say my GPs are too busy or I couldn't get through to the GP or the GP receptionist said just go to A&E, I will scream. The staff in A&E departments across the country are at breaking point. I no longer love my job. Our stress levels are sky high, seeing even more patients than pre-pandemic. Yet we all have so little left in our tanks to give. Patients' frustration at the current situation is generally taken out on us in A&E because they can't get through to their GPs or they are being diagnosed over the phone and not being seen in person. The fallout from this is going to be far worse than the actual pandemic and something has to change before staff are completely burnt out. Thank you for listening. Well, Penny, we've been hearing a lot of that, haven't we, Liam? We have indeed had so many emails along the same lines, not to take anything away from the strength of Penny's emotion on that, but just to reassure her and others that you are not alone. Many, many people feel the same way. This is from Millie, a Planet Normal listener who's just 25 years old. Thursday's become my favourite day of the week for the past year, thanks to you and your wonderful podcast, which has kept me, in brackets, almost sane. <laughs> I was living the dream working as long-haul cabin crew for an international airline, 
until I was made redundant due to travel restrictions forcing my airline to cease trading. I felt utterly lost since. I feel like as if my chosen career and lifestyle have been torn away from me so unnecessarily. I can't work from home. I despair when friends or relatives say, you'll be flying again soon, as the latest announcements about the ridiculous green, red and amber countries come out, as well as the latest variant, pushing my chances of doing a day's work in my chosen profession further away. I recently had to walk out of a pub when I overheard a group of retirees ranting about how selfish people are for wanting to go abroad on holiday. But how selfish is this view for the millions of people in the travel industry who are out of work and out of pocket? I know pilots who were once on extremely good salaries being turned down for supermarket jobs and losing their homes. I can't wait, says Millie, until we're travelling again so holiday makers, people working in the industry and the UK economy can reap the rewards. Keep up the great work on Planet Normal. Well, Millie, we've had a number of emails very similar. And how dare people say it's selfish for people to want to travel when one of our great industries is tourism, is supported by travel. Just from me, a couple of reviews from Apple iTunes. Fantastic podcast, says Linda. Just finished the ironing, listening to Planet Normal. Your brave journalists and brave astronauts carry on podcasting. And this is from Mrs. B, also on Apple iTunes. Before I reclaim my social life as we slowly inch along the roadmap, the highlight of my week is cleaning the bathroom while listening to Planet Normal. (laughs) I've laughed, cried and got angry along with Alison and Liam since the very first episode and haven't missed one since. I feel you've both become wonderful friends. In fact, I now tell my husband I'm going to listen to Alison. Sorry, Liam, but I'm a middle-aged woman with some Welsh heritage who has anger issues with the orthodoxy so she speaks to my menopausal. <laughs> Do leave a review. <laughs> Help the Planet Normal family to grow. Thanks to Mrs B for that one. Well, yes, menopausal Welsh women cleaning <laughs> bathrooms and finding great pleasure and satisfaction in bathroom cleaning, I can tell you. And that's it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views, email of the week is my call and it's Millie. Yeah, Millie, send us your postal address. And you will get a coveted Planet Normal mug. You may not be able to fly for now, but at least you can drink your tea knowing you have one of the rarest cups in the universe. And flying aboard our imaginary rocket, Millie. Liam and I will be responding as normal to your comments on the Telegraph website on Thursday morning, the day this podcast is released, between 11am and 12 noon. And we'll put the link to that article in the description notes of this episode, or just go to telegraph.co.uk and look for the article labelled Planet Normal. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt and our editor Theodora Leludis. Stay safe and stay in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.